quick disclaimer, this is Greek mythology, so there's some mention of assault and some stronger-than-usual violence. Please check out the post on mythpodcast.com for more info. This week, on Myths and Legends, we're back in the backstories of the Olympians with Apollo. We'll see that there's no problem unbridled sociopathic rage can't make worse, and that if all your dates are running away from you and turning into trees, well, maybe take the hint. The creature this week is a tiny chick, who may be the origin of all weather veins. Weather veins that can store a river in their butts. This is Myths and Legends, episode 338, The Oracle. This is a podcast where we tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you might think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. We're back in what was supposed to be our monthly Greek myth episodes, but they're stretching me a bit as a writer. It's a challenge, but it's a fun one. So sorry, this one is a little late. We're going over the history of the Olympians, and we've done Hermes, Hephaestus, Aphrodite, and now we're getting to something of a heavy hitter, Apollo. Apollo is the son of Leto, a daughter of a Titan, and like many Olympians, he's a son of Zeus. We'll jump in, not with either of those, but with Hera, making a deal with a talking snake, because that always goes well. Step into my office, Hera said. Sorry, Slither, because you're a giant snake. Serpent, ma'am, Python hissed. Hera didn't care, duh. She said Python was aware of the prophecy, right? Python slithered up to the chair and coiled up in it. The prophecy concerning his death? Yes, this is ancient Greece. We're all obsessed with those. A child of Leto would kill him. He'd like to see them try. Leto's pregnant. Hera informed the serpent. She gives birth soon. The python was about to laugh. So what? So, it's Zeus's, Hera sneered. Leto's hidden beauty caught Zeus's eye, and he laid with her. Oh, that's, that's a weird way to say assault, Python said. He shook his snake head. Zeus was a monster, and this was coming from a literal thonic monster. You need to devour Leto before she gives birth. For both of our sakes, Hera commanded. Python didn't like the idea of devouring pregnant women, but it was now her or him. Hera might have pointed out that, by sending Python after the pregnant Leto, she was fabricating the very situation in which Leto's future children would go after the giant serpent, as happens in, like, every Greek play concerning fate and the avoidance of said fate. She didn't, though. I made it easier for you. I put out an edict. Leto, the daughter of Titans, can't give birth on the earth, the mainland, or any island in the sea. All the gods have to follow it. Not even Zeus can override this order, Hera said. Python reiterated that he didn't like it, hunting down pregnant women. Then die, Hera crossed her arms. Python looked to the ground. <laughs> yeah, that's what she thought. She told Python to get going. Leto had friends, and it wouldn't be long before they figured out a loophole. There was always a loophole. (music) 
Lido couldn't weep. She couldn't scream. She had been in labor for nine days. She was experiencing the absolute worst pain imaginable, but it wouldn't end. She had heard the decree. She couldn't give birth on Earth or on an island. She didn't know what she did to deserve this. She hadn't wanted Zeus to, but it happened. And now Hera was after her? She was the one who made that decree. Leto couldn't cry out though, because he, it, was always nearby. Slithering, stalking, waiting. She didn't know why the python was always trying to destroy her, but she knew it had something to do with Hera. Blub, 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 blub. Leto! Leto! Triton called out as he emerged from the water and immediately flopped over. <laughs> Whoops, forgot I don't have legs. <gasps> Can't breathe air. Triton, the son of Poseidon and Amphitrite, the sea queen, rose up on his little flippies. Triton waved again. Leto! Leto, wincing, shook her head and drug her fingers across her neck. Do, do I have something in my beard? Triton brushed his own neck. He squinted at something else that rose from the grass, not a hundred meters from Leto. Triton gulped another breath. Hey, hey you, giant snake guy. Can you tell Leto we found a loophole so that she can give birth? She's just sitting there in that tuft of grass by the shore. Oh, never mind. She's, you don't have to worry about it. She's running to me now. Triton was impressed by how fast Leto could move in active labor. Not so surprised by how fast the snake could move, though curious as to why he was coming to greet Triton. Leto threw herself on the merman's back and told him to go. Triton shrugged and dove, speeding off into the deep. Python followed for as long as he could before the water pressure and lack of air made him peel off. Leto had gotten away. It's a water dome, Triton explained. Leto screamed she did not care, as long as she could get this child out of her. Children, Elithia, the goddess of childbirth, said, watching the roof of the water dome. As soon as it closed, they weren't technically on an island in the sea anymore. They were on an island under the sea. It's a water dome, Triton turned to Elithia. As soon as it closes, we're not technically on an island in the sea anymore, or get him out of here. Elithia turned to Poseidon. Poseidon nodded, pointed a finger at his merman son, and a jet of water carried the giggling triton to the surface. As soon as she was able, Elithia aided the birth of the first baby, Apollo. Themis, a friend of Leto's and the second wife of Zeus, after the one he ate, but before Hera and the others, scooped up Apollo. Elithia wasn't wrong. Another baby was coming, and Leto didn't have time to breastfeed. Themis poured out the nectar and ambrosia for the baby, Apollo. I'm fairly certain we've talked about it, but nectar and ambrosia were the food of the gods. They gave immortality. They replaced the blood with ichor. Hercules was given some when he earned immortality, and that day was the day that Apollo became an immortal and an Olympian. The lyre and curved bow shall ever be dear to me, and I will declare to men the unfailing will of Zeus, the baby Apollo cried and took off. Themis's eyes widened. She looked around. Leto was still in labor with the second baby. Elithia was helping her. Poseidon was maintaining the water dome. No one saw. Good. She stole off after the baby. Four days later, Themis returned from another search. She knocked on the door of Leto's home on the island of Thelos. After the babies were born, Poseidon allowed the island to rise from the sea. 
and become the new home of the goddess and her kids. Or it would have been if they could find Apollo. A rainbow light engulfed the world outside. Themis looked at Leto as Iris, the messenger of the gods, let herself in. They found your child. Iris's face was grim. It was Python. Leto's hand went to her mouth. No. Yes, Iris said. Then cocked her head. Wait, what did Leto think it was? She said that monster. He finished the job he started when I was pregnant. He... He ate my child. Tears began to form in Leto's eyes. Iris laughed. No, I wish. Your baby, Apollo, he killed Python. Zeus slammed the receiver to his phone down. This wasn't even hooked up. It was just a prop. He called to Athena. Bring him in. Apollo, at four days old, was every bit a young man. He had grown quickly. He was also speckled with blood. He walked in gripping his bow, arrows dangling off his belt. Zeus spat his toothpick out. You're a loose cannon. What did you say your name was? Zeus said, stroking his mustache behind his desk. Apollo, sir, Apollo said. Zeus rose, Apollo, how old are you, son? Apollo said four days, he just joined up. Apollo, what you did? You killed the python. Zeus sat on the desk and took off his aviators to reveal another pair of aviators. Apollo said it was a, it was a giant snake. There's no more salient symbol of evil. Further, python had tried to kill his mother. Hera had sent the monster to keep his mother, Leto, from giving birth. Apollo, being full-grown at four days, had hunted the python down. He found it at a shrine to Gaia, at the center of the world, Delphi. He slew the creature next to the altar. None of this would have been a problem had Hera not... Zeus slammed his hand down on his wooden desk. Enough. He had paperwork for days now with this python thing, and Grandma Gaia was pounding down his door. So right and wrong don't matter, just what inconveniences you. Apollo said, sitting back and crossing his arms. There was a long pause. I need you to turn in your badge and bow, Zeus said. Apollo said, but wait, did all the other Olympians get badges? What actually defines an Olympian? It can't all be your children because that's, then everybody would be up here. But nothing, Zeus said. He didn't commit to the 70s and 80s police chief bit for Apollo to talk back to him. To avoid Tartarus, Apollo was going to do nine years of slavery for a mortal. Apollo grimaced. What, what was any of this? This was serious? He killed an ancient evil monster and he was being punished for it? He should be getting a parade. Zeus said to put the bow and arrow down. Apollo shook his head. No. Zeus pulled down his glasses to reveal a third pair of glasses. What did Apollo say to him? Just then, there was a noise at the door. Zeus looked over Apollo's shoulder. Oh, hey, Leto. Leto grimaced at him and didn't know what was happening with the wood paneling aesthetic in this room. Was this a bit? She had heard enough, though. Apollo refused. Zeus. Leto knew that Zeus would not ask again. She put her hand on Apollo's wrist. She felt her son relax. She looked at the bow and then at the desk. Apollo took a deep breath and set the bow down. He looked up at his dad and pointed. He said this was ridiculous. He was an Olympian. 
He had been born into this. Not until you're purified at Tempe. Nine years, Zeus called after his son, Apollo. He crossed his arms and stood as Apollo stormed from his office. Leto shook her head in disgust as she tried to keep up. She slammed the door and the blinds rattled against them. He's a loose cannon, but he's the best we got, Zeus said. Alone, he looked around. All right, I'm bored of this, Zeus said. He plugged his nose, puffed out his cheeks, and exhaled, his beard popping back out around the mustache. He tore his shirt and tie off, revealing a toga underneath, and went to go lightning bolt some stuff. We'll see Apollo go into exile, get an adorable centaur son, and meet a creepy little goat guy. But that will be right after this. Hey, I think you're my brother, Artemis said to Apollo as he was being escorted down from Olympus. They both stood there in a traveling cloak, long hair, same height, same basic look. Yeah, that tracks. No bow, though. Weird, Artemis said, pointing to Apollo's empty hands. Apollo groaned, yeah, his dad took it for killing the python. Oh, that thing that was hunting mom, Artemis said. Yeah, she didn't blame him. If Apollo didn't do it, she was on her way. Nice, Apollo nodded at his twin. So, what are you up to now? Artemis said. Apollo explained that, well, it turned out that he was maybe being a little enslaved. Before either of Zeus's goons could blink, Artemis knocked an arrow. Apollo smiled. He appreciated the enthusiasm. It was just nine years, though. He was supposed to purify for killing the python. And real quickly, the rules of purification and what requires purification vary wildly throughout Greek mythology. But in general, if someone did something especially heinous, see Heracles killing his wife and children after being driven mad by Hera, they had to do something to remove the stain of that sin. It was only such a terrible crime because Python was the child of Gaia, Zeus's grandma. And like we said in the previous scene, she demanded that Apollo be thrown into Tartarus. And Tartarus if you didn't know, was the really bad underworld. It was the place gods, titans, and especially terrible mortals went to go be tortured forever. It's where the modern-day social media star Sisyphus is constantly pushing a rock up a hill because, I guess according to TikTok, he loves it so much because of how swole he's getting. I guess, though, I just had Zeus doing the irascible police chief trope, so probably should keep my mouth shut when it comes to questionable mythology takes. Anyway. Aside from Sisyphus, I guess, no one wanted to be in Tartarus. Even at four days old, Apollo understood the severity of angering his great-grandma, but that didn't mean he had to like it. He didn't, but he was able to forget about all the other gods partying it up on Olympus, and getting up to all sorts of horrible things, and just focus on his penance. Nine years later, he was free. He told his human enslavers to enjoy mortality, and took off. He had an appointment with someone, so something like this would never happen again, even though this would happen at least two more times. He traveled to the mountainous region of Arcadia. The god Pan is like Mr. Tumnus, if Mr. Tumnus was in Game of Thrones. He's a fawn, half-human-ish, half-goat creature. Unlike Mr. Tumnus, though, his lower body fur doesn't remotely cover what it needs to cover. And in pretty much every image of him, he's 
very proud. Pan was the god of the wilds, shepherds, flocks, and the companion, wink, of the nymphs. Apollo had been learning from travelers during his time as a slave. He knew Pan, the half-goat-legged, half-human-ish creature, traveled these hills, playing his weird little flute and being pretty gross. I'm also connected with fertility and spring. Also, privacy is hard to come by in the ancient world, and people might have to resort to the forests for some alone time, which is another possible connection for all the, you know, below-the-belt stuff. Pan shouted at him. Apollo said, cool, also hi, brother, I guess? He also heard Pan knew about prophecy? Pan said, yeah. Do you want to know how to do prophecy? Apollo was surprised that it was possibly this easy. Pan said, yeah, no big deal. He was the son of Zeus as well, so they were like half-brothers. They were family. Apollo said, okay, wow. He had come prepared to, like, torture it out of the little half-goat guy. Oh, please don't, Pan said, and showed Apollo prophecy. I've looked up every place this was referenced, and yeah, it's weird that arguably Apollo's defining trait was one that he learned from this sleazy little goat bro. Maybe it's just that Apollo wasn't the first to have prophecy, but he was the one to put a good user experience with it. Like, either you can go hunt down this stinky, pantsless goat man in the forest to learn your future, or you can go to the Oracle at Delphi and listen to the priestesses there. And that's just what Apollo did. He went to Delphi. And back in Delphi, where he had fought the python, Apollo got to cleaning up some things. Python, thankfully, had the good manners to crawl off and die somewhere on the road so Apollo didn't come back to him stinking the place up. And, with word of his return, it wasn't long after that that Artemis arrived at Delphi, with a baby. Apollo said, uh, congrats on the half-horse child. Did he need to get a stable for when his new nephew stayed over? Artemis said, what? No, this one wasn't hers. She had found him. She knew the mother, and she knew of the father. The mother was a nymph, the father was the titan Cronus, in the form of a horse. Artemis had found the little creature on the side of the road, abandoned. As far as she knew, he was the first and only one of his kind. A half-horse, half-human. Artemis took pity on him, and so did Apollo. While the siblings reconnected after Apollo's long time away, Artemis trained the little centaur in archery and hunting. Apollo, in his time, trained the little guy in music, medicine, and prophecy gave them some perspective on the lives of mortals, because they watched this baby grow up in what felt like an instant. When he was ready, they said goodbye to Chiron. Throughout this time, Artemis told Apollo what living on Olympus was like. It was mostly fun, though it definitely was not her scene. It was all luxury and banquets, and Artemis laughed. They were at dinner, a banquet for the gods, and Athena, you know, the woman who's a lot like me but has her own city or whatever, she starts playing this flute and Hera and Aphrodite are just cracking up. I don't get it, but then I look over and Athena's cheeks are all puffed out in a different color. How, how's that funny? Apollo asked. I know, right? It's a low bar for humor, Artemis continued. Anyway, I guess she went to the river and saw her reflection when she played, because she tossed the instrument away. They're still laughing at her about it, though. The Olympians are kind of horrible. So, what's next for you? Gonna be an oracle? Artemis asked her brother. Apollo said, kind of. He was going to speak through some women in this cave. He was really kind of still figuring out who he was, though. 
He just met the new kid, Hermes, and got this thing. A, a liar? A fair bit of tortoise murder went into making it, but it sounded fantastic. As for what was next, he actually, after this conversation, he kind of knew. That story, it gave him a vision. There was a guy he had to go flay alive. Artemis smiled. Sounds great. Wait, what? Marcius, the human, or I guess satyr in some places, asked Sibylle, definitely a human, to please eat her berries. She sat there, muttering to herself as the berry juice dribbled down her shirt. He bent down to the stream and washed his face and sighed. He was getting older. Was this all there would be from his life? Marcius had loved her, loved Sibylle, from the moment he saw her. She never loved him. That was okay, though. Sibylle, the cursed princess. They had been friends once when she had been capable of that. She had been left exposed on a mountaintop as a baby. Tale tragically as old as time. But like many infants in mythology and probably no infants in real life, she survived on the milk of the beasts of the forest. She was named for the mountain that she was found on. And she was special. She made the pipe of many reeds, kettle drums and cymbals. She also knew the healing arts. That's how Marseus, the physician, had met her. He was traveling through town and learned that there was a woman, a physician like himself, healing children, saving lives. Marseus hunkered down to help her, and he never left. Her father, who had refused to have a daughter, was more than happy to acknowledge the girl whose fame had spread so far. When he learned her name and her circumstances, he knew that she was his. She was invited back home. But he wasn't inviting her back home simply out of kindness. A famous daughter meant a better match, more advantageous alliances, more money. No one told Sibylle. Marseus knew that she loved Addis. All the men in town were infatuated with Sibylle, but Addis was the one she chose. Marseus, in the end, was happy for two of his friends. They were close enough that Marseus knew that she was pregnant. Her father, the king, did not. Sibylle didn't think that she needed to hide this. It turned out that she did. It was an overcast day when Sibylle awoke to a putrid stench in the courtyard and the laughing guards. She walked downstairs. She wasn't yet showing, but all of her maids knew or had known. She saw the courtyard, the bodies tossed and piled, her maids, but not just her maids. Addis, the man she loved, the father of her child. She ran to him, but he was hours dead and still full of arrows. Her father's men had used him for practice. Marseus was in the city when he saw her run out, crying in anguish. Something broke within Sibylle that day. Her father, the king, had not followed her into the wilderness. He knew that she would soon follow her beloved to the grave. But the king didn't anticipate Marseus following her into the forest. The king didn't really care, though. He never saw either of them again. Marseus, when he found her, saw that she, she was broken by what her father had done. 
He loved her, though. Even though she didn't know who he was most of the time, he fed her, protected her, and looked after her. He couldn't help it. Then, one day, while he leaned down at the stream to wash his face and beard, and she mimicked him, laughing, he saw a strange piece of wood float by. He grabbed a nearby stick and pulled it over, and it was odd. A pipe with holes in it, in the shape of a Y. He knew what it was. A double oboe, an alos. Marseus put it to his mouth and blew. And the pipe, with its memory of Athena playing it for the banquet of the Olympians, sang. After a long song, Marseus sat back with a smile. Then he looked at Sibylle. She was changed. She was as she had been before. She still didn't speak, but she was calm. And she snuggled up next to him, holding his hand. After that, Marseus played every day. He became well-known for his music. He learned the instrument so well that when Athena's song ran out, he could play nearly as beautifully on his own. And then the fateful words. He was in the city of Nysa, which is either in Ethiopia, Libya, Thrace, India, or the Arabian Peninsula, since all those places are basically the same. I think it's just supposed to read as really far away from Greece, don't worry about it. Anyway, in Nysa, while Marseus was traveling to the city, he found his fans waiting. Then, someone called out what they thought was a compliment. We'll see what you should definitely not yell at a concert, but that will, once again, be right after this. I think you might be too late, Artemis said when they arrived. Yeah, that's the thing about fate. There's no changing it. You're never late. You always arrive exactly when you should, Apollo said. But they're already basically worshipping this guy, Artemis pointed to Marseus. Basically, Apollo said, it would make the man who claimed to be better than him's fall even more dramatic. I challenge you, Marseus, Apollo called out to the physician and pulled out the lyre, the one he had just gotten a few months back from Hermes. Marseus looked at the Olympian, shimmering in all of his glory. It was beyond all doubt what he was, and the crowd was silent. Marseus said he never claimed to be better than Apollo. But you didn't deny it, Apollo sneered. Marseus replied that he didn't want trouble. Apollo said it was too late for that. Besides, your consequences were always going to find you. Either you play or you die, Apollo said. So, Marseus played. And he did it. He played his instrument and Apollo could barely keep up with his lyre. Apollo was sweating. Marseus was panting. Apollo said it was a good job. How about this? Whoever won could ask anything of the other person, and they would have to do it. Marseus looked to Sibylle, and then back to the god of healing. Yes. So, they played again. And it was going well. Marseus was going to do it. Sibylle was going to be cured. And then Marseus heard singing. Apollo was singing. The whole crowd was enraptured. Marseus stopped. That wasn't fair. 
Paulo looked at him. Oh, to use both the wind of his lungs and his fingers, like Marseus was doing? The judge, the king of the city, agreed that it was basically the same thing, even though it was not remotely the same thing, and let the contest proceed. It had been so close, but as soon as Apollo started singing, Marseus knew he had lost. The judge confirmed it, and Marseus sighed. What could he possibly offer a god that the god didn't already have? Your skin, Apollo said. What? Marseus staggered back. Yeah, your skin. Apollo began to smile, his mad smile. Artemis put her hand on his arm and he shook her off. Marseus thought he could outmatch a god? These were the consequences of which Apollo had spoken. Apollo, while he was doing it, hearing the screams of Marseus, the wailing of Sibylle, and the shudder of the slowly dwindling crowd of observers, wondered, did he choose to flay Marseus alive because it was fate? Or was it fate because he chose it? Hey, so good to see you again, Artemis said to her brother after he got out of prison. Again? What have you been up to? You look good. It had been a few years. Artemis had told her brother to stay out of it when Hera led the revolt on Olympus against Zeus. I don't know why I did it, Apollo had said at his trial. Artemis believed him. There were many good reasons for overthrowing Zeus. His treatment of their mother, his treatment of everyone's mother, his general terribleness, and with him gone, Apollo was only a couple of murdery steps away from the throne himself. But Apollo just acted, like he did with the Python or Marseus or any of the other times. He felt strong feelings, didn't know how to handle them, and just acted. He was more like their father than either of them were comfortable admitting. She knew about Dryope. Dryope was a nymph, and she and her friends were known for frolicking and playing with the tortoises. Well, one day a new tortoise was there. Dryope scooped him up to greet him, and he became a venomous serpent, coiling around her wrists and scaring off her friends. No matter how far her friends ran that day, they could hear her screams echoing through the hills. There was Daphne, of 17th century statue fame. The unfortunate nymph had caught the eye of Apollo, and she ran. She was the daughter of the river Peneus in Thessaly. She was also a priestess of Gaia, and seeing an Olympian gaining on her, Daphne knew of nothing else she could do than to cry out for mercy. And she was granted mercy. She found that she couldn't run anymore because her feet took root. Apollo's arms wrapped around her, but her skin was no longer her skin. It was bark. She had been transformed into a laurel tree. Apollo tore some of her branches and leaves to make a wreath for himself. There was also Hyacinthus. He was a beautiful Spartan prince. He also had someone else vying for his affections, a poet, Thamyris. Apollo had learned his lesson from the Marseilles incident. Well, he had learned a lesson. Thamyris had said he surpassed even the muses in songs and verse. And Apollo, well, he told on the poet. The muses didn't even give Thamyris a chance. 
or the illusion of a chance as Apollo had done for Marseilles, a silent misery radiated from his house when the muses, in a moment, took his sight, his voice, and his ability to play the harp. Just like that, the field was clear. Except for the wind. Presumably, Apollo was using the teaching him how to throw a discus tact as an excuse to get close for Hyacinthus, and it backfired. Like, literally, the discus backfired. You see, Hyacinthus was so good-looking, even the wind was jealous. Apollo showed him the right way to throw a discus, turned with a smile, and then watched as that same discus returned and obliterated most of that smile. Dead leaves weren't all that were driven from the West Wind's unseen presence that day. Taking an, if I can't have him, no one can, Zephyrus killed Hyacinthus. It was about here that Apollo, racked with pain and grief, but wanting to deal with neither of those things, joined the ill-fated coup on Olympus. We've talked about it a number of times, and it'll possibly be a bigger plot point in Hera's episode, but nearly everyone turned against Zeus once, and almost had him. He was freed, though, and took terrible vengeance. Apollo and Poseidon's punishment was not actually all that bad, though. They were tasked, as part of their work release, to build up the walls of a city on the edge of the world, a city called Troy. Now I have a date, Apollo grinned at his sister. What? Yeah, I met her in Troy. She is amazing, Apollo said. Artemis said, okay, does, does she know you're going on a date? Apollo said, yes, he had a whole special day planned, please. He had learned his lesson. He didn't want his dates turning into trees, at least not until after. Artemis grimaced that. From what she knew of that, that wasn't a date. Apollo told her not to wait up. He was going to see Cassandra. Apollo smiled as they sat down at the table. Wow, it had been such a fun day. Cassandra smiled. She said, yeah, it really was. Paddleboarding, swim in the pool, walk through the village, dancing. Apollo said there was one more thing he wanted to give her. He reached forward and touched her temple. He recognized the look on Cassandra's face. It was knowledge. Knowledge of everything. The future, all possible futures, unfolding in her mind. Constantly shifting. Some becoming real, others falling off into mere possibilities. She took a deep breath. Wow, it's amazing. I know. Apollo smirked as he reached for the envelope on the table with a key next to it. Cassandra's smile faded. Wait. Apollo and Cassandra, Apollo read. Welcome to beautiful, sunny Turkey. Should you choose to forego your individual rooms, please use this key to stay as a couple in the fantasy suite. Apollo looked up. Wow. So, Cassandra... Do you want to go to the fantasy suite? Cassandra had seen all of this transpire as soon as Apollo reached for that envelope, the moment that future was certain. But, um, is that what this was? Apollo said, yeah, what? Candles, wine, gift of prophecy? I mean, <laughs> babe, come on. Cassandra's chair moved back. She, uh, wow, hmm. No offense, but no? No. Apollo didn't understand. He was an Olympian. 
people didn't say no to Olympians. <laughs> well, I mean, a lot of them did, but Cassandra cut him off. It was just, she liked him, but as a friend, you know? I gave you prophecy. She said, thank you, but I kind of hate it, though. Gesturing all around to the city of Troy surrounding her, did he know what was not just a possible outcome for the city, but a likely one? Yeah, it gets sacked and burned to the ground like every city ever in the future and past. Cass, babe, I don't get what's wrong here. It's one night. And the answer is no, Cassandra said. Apollo sneered. No one's going to believe you. Cassandra asked, what? Apollo said, yeah. Hope she enjoys being an ignored prophet of doom. Everyone will hear her prophecy, but no one will believe them. Ever. She's doomed to see the future, but never change it. Boom. Cassandra asked how that was... How does that even make sense? If she successfully, uncannily foretold the future, say, ten times in a row? If she was batting a thousand? To make a future baseball reference, which she understood because she could see that future. On the 11th, they still wouldn't believe her? That was ridiculous. Apollo could see that this curse really wasn't landing as well as it should. He rose threw his napkin down, and stormed off. Cassandra was cold. Not because of Apollo. She didn't care about him and knew he wouldn't be back. She could see the future now. She could see her city, Troy, burning. Its citizens dead in the street, or worse, the face of the man who would take her from her home, who would die because of her. She rose from the table to go warn Priam, her father, or Hector, her brother, Somewhere, deep down, she feared she wouldn't be able to do anything. That Apollo's curse had been real. Apollo, my throne room, now! A yell rang out across Olympus. It was Zeus. Apollo skidded in. Zeus told him to take a seat. This was serious. He pointed to the man sitting before him. Who's this old guy? Apollo shook his head. The man looked up at him with glistening eyes. Papa? Apollo blinked. Oh, oh. He pointed. Aria. That's, that's your mom. No, no, that's... Thalia? No? Oh, Pythia. Has to be, right? I remember Pythia. Asclepius shook his head. Uh, Coronas? His mother was Princess Coronas. Apollo shrugged. Oh, definitely remembered who she was. You took me to go to Chiron's hero daycare? I, I did everything to make you proud of me my whole life, Asclepius said. Some brief backstory. Chiron was one of the few wise, self-controlled centaurs who Apollo and his sister actually trained. And so many heroes went to his school. Jason of the Argonauts, Achilles, and others. Chiron! Oh, my boy! He's like a son to me, that little guy! Apollo said to his literal, biological son. Then he grimaced. Oh, yeah. He remembered Asclepius. It was another one of the women he had found. He did a Cupid thing. Arriving at her home in secret in the night, under the guise that he was an attractive young man. She didn't stand a chance. Soon, she became pregnant. He was away a long time after that. The world was a big place and he could do anything. 
he would realize later that she was only trying to stay alive when she took up with another young man, probably in an attempt to marry him and legitimize the pregnancy in the eyes of her father. Apollo saw it from across the world with his prophecy. He returned to Thessaly in an instant, and before she could utter a word, there was an arrow in her chest. Like with Marseus, he instantly regretted it and tried to heal her, but she was beyond even his skills. She died in his arms. He delivered the child through the anachronistically named Caesarean section and brought him to be raised by Chiron. He brought a man back from the dead, multiple man's men, Zeus said, crossing his arms. Strike that from the record. You did what? Apollo turned. That's amazing. Zeus, Zeus said what? Apollo didn't even pay attention to his own father. Asclepius had done something not even he, Apollo, could do. That's fantastic. He's already well known for it. Hades is on his way up to demand payment for the lives Asclepius stole from him, Zeus said. Asclepius couldn't do this thing again, or else humans could live forever. Apollo was sensing a conclusion that Zeus was approaching, but not yet acknowledging. He'll be fine. He won't do it again, right? Apollo said to his son, who, who shook his head. He wouldn't. He only did it to get his dad's attention, really. Zeus looked to the marble floor. Son, I'm sorry, Zeus said. Asclepius couldn't be allowed to leave. Apollo said no. He wouldn't let Zeus do this to him, his son. <laughs> do it, Zeus laughed. He wasn't some supervillain. Did Apollo think he would call him here if there was the slightest chance of him affecting the outcome? I thunderbolted him 35 minutes ago. Apollo and Asclepius looked at each other. What? What? He was... Apollo pointed to his son. He was sitting right here, though. Zeus said, Oh, yeah. He guessed he didn't do the necessary prep work for that Ozymandias line. Okay, uh, Thunderbolt. The room exploded in light and sound, and when Apollo's eyes adjusted and his ears stopped ringing, there was only the smoldering chair and the charred remains of his son. Apollo turned to face Zeus, who had another thunderbolt ready. He said, do it, see what happens. Apollo hesitated, shook his head, and stormed out. It had to be done, Apollo. I'm sorry, Zeus called out. In retrospect, everyone should have seen the massacre of the Cyclopes coming. Apollo, in response to Zeus killing his son that he just learned existed again, went straight to Earth. The Cyclopes had something of a deal with Zeus. They make his thunderbolts, he lets them live and eat any travelers that don't blind them. Apollo had gone too far this time. Cave after cave was still with death. Gaia, their mother, was grieving and Zeus was without his weapon makers. He had a cache of thunderbolts, of course, but that would dwindle in time. They picked up Apollo and imprisoned him. I can't stop them. I can't stop you, Artemis said to her brother. Mom is pleading for you right now to dad to Zeus, 
but she doesn't know if she can save you. I don't know if she should, Artemis said. Polo said, what? It was his son. Zeus killed his son. No, it was your pride and your anger. You're just like them, Artemis said. She said she hoped he was spared Tartarus, but the outcome was the same. The brother she thought she knew, he had gone away a long time ago, and he never came back, no matter how much she deceived herself. She gestured to Apollo. Whoever this was, she never wanted to see him again. Come on, Artemis, Apollo yelled after her. She turned and didn't look back. Zeus's guards didn't let him follow. Apollo was spared Tartarus, thanks to, once again, the pleading of his mother, Leto. He would serve, again, as a slave to a mortal. It was the third time in his life that he had done so. Leto told her son the same thing. This was the last time. At some point, protecting a monster made her complicit, and she hated Zeus. She wasn't going to raise another one. So Apollo went to work in the sheepfolds of King Admetius, Showing that if she wasn't a titan, she would have a promising career as a defense attorney. Leto had argued Zeus down from eternal torture to a year of hard labor. If Apollo wanted to, he could blink, and the year would be over, and he would be back out there, same as before. But he didn't want to. He realized that he did need to make a change, so he slowed down. He took in each day. He got to know the people working by his side, understanding that, for them, this wasn't a punishment. This was their everyday life. No one has a perfect life, but he realized the things that he could be grateful for. And at the end of his sentence, each and every sheep gave birth to twins, doubling his master's wealth overnight. The master, realizing that he'd been blessed by the gods, rewarded the workers. Apollo apologized to his sister and his mother, and though I'd like to say he talked to those he had wronged, he probably didn't. From that day on, at least two maxims were forever on his lips, know thyself and nothing in excess. And he strove every day to try to live up to them. This, of course, is not the entire story of Apollo. Oddly enough, it's one that actually has an arc, with him being a rage-filled, thoughtless monster to adopting those sayings at the end. But the change still feels tacked on because I do wish there was justice for any of the people he wronged throughout the story. And, of course, no amount of change undoes what he did. Because, yeah, he did a lot of gross and terrible things. Unfortunately, save for Athena and maybe one or two others, kind of only gets worse from here on out for the Olympians. Anyway, still figuring out the next months, and if Artemis gets her own episode. I love the character, but the backstory is a bit light. But if we can make Ares work in a few months, maybe we can figure out Artemis too. Next week, we're back to the Norse myths, and we follow a Viking named Viking who goes Viking with Vikings. It's, it's a Viking tale, if you can't tell. The creature this week is Half Chick, from Spain. What do you do if you have one leg, one wing, and one eye? 
Well, you go talk to the king in Madrid. Little half chick was exactly that. Half a chick cut right down the middle. Still, he wouldn't let that stop him. After finding some cash under a dung pile, because sure, he decided that he was going to go purchase grain from the king. Also, some versions have him leaving his hometown because life was too boring for him there. Like I said, there are two vastly different versions of half chick. One is a cautionary tale about kindness and respect when meeting new people. The other extols the benefits of hiding an actual river in your anus. On the cautionary one, half chick was just going to go talk to the king. Now, on the way to Madrid, he met water in a brook that was so choked by reeds it couldn't move. Half chick said he couldn't be bothered with other people's problems. Hoppity kick, hoppity kick. This happened with a fire that was smothered by damp sticks and wind caught in bushes. And when Half Chick came to Madrid, he didn't even make it to the king. He caught the eye of the cook, who, because I guess he's I don't know, a psychopath and wanted to watch a baby chick boil alive, dropped the chick into the water and turned up the heat. The chick begged the water and fire to save him. But since they were vindictive about him not helping them on the road, they made it hotter and half chick was burned to a crisp. You know, what happens when you boil things. The cook tossed him out the window, and he was caught by the wind, who, instead of taking him to the ground, propped him up on a steeple. There, he would spin, pushed by the wind forever. This was, of course, the origin of the weather vane. The other version is as confusing as it is off-putting. Half chick made friends with the river, and the river, the entirety of it, hid in the chicken's butt. Half Chick gained an audience with the king who, instead of trading for grain, put him out with the chickens in the field, hoping they'd kill him. He let a fox in. He put Half Chick in with the horses so they would kick him to death. So Half Kick let a wolf in. Finally, he moved to cook Half Chick, but Half Chick relaxed, flooding the palace with the river from, yeah. The king gave Half Chick the grain and his money back, and Half Chick hopped off with the grain, money, and most important of all, without a river in his butt. That's it for this time. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more of the music we used in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.